We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ's likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin our reading this morning in verse 8 together. We continue to walk through the book of Revelation together. We have come to the letters to the churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor. And today we are looking at the church of Smyrna. The Lord Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died... And came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt about the second death. Let's pray. God, we pray right now that as we read through this text, as we study it together, that you would illuminate these words before us, that we might understand and believe, that we might be changed, Lord, that we might be stronger disciples as a result of encountering you this morning in this text. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Samuel Massey, most of you probably don't know his name. He was a street cleaner in the city of Lahore, Pakistan. One day while he was out cleaning the streets, he was cleaning out a garden, he was accused of taking garbage and piling up that garbage on a wall that happened to be one wall of a mosque. And he was very quickly arrested, thrown in jail, and then as a result of the torture and the weeks of being put into this prison and this jail, he was repeatedly beaten and tortured for his Christian faith. He was not a Muslim. He was a Christian. And eventually a guard, hoping to fulfill some form of jihad, and kind of an action against an unbeliever, took a brick hammer and murdered him with it. Thousands of miles away, in uh, August, a man by the name of Jesus Sanchez gave, gave a Bible lecture at a small little school for pastors, for training up leaders in the rural area of Tamalima in Colombia. And at the close of his talk, after he was kind of wrapping things up, a man burst into the room dragged Jesus outside and then shot him. Deep in the Brazilian rainforest, in a different place, a woman who was 73 years old by the name of Dorothy, Dorothy Stang, she lived among a people that did not like her, did not want her there. And as a Christian, one of the things that she was doing in that 
region was helping common folk, common laborers, um, not be taken advantage of by some of the logging firms that were working in the area, ranchers that were working in the area. And one day as she was walking to meet with some other believers, she was walking down this path, she was encountered by two young men and, and they had weapons. And so she didn't really know what to do, and so she took out her Bible and she began to read her Bible to them. And after a couple of moments, they listened to her, but then they opened fire and shot her. She was shot six times in the head, in the throat, in the body. It seems like Christians in America, we have looked the other way for a very long time in regards to the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world. Most Christians don't realize that 45.5 million projected million Christians who have been martyred of the 70 million of the total throughout Christian history, 45.5 million of those have happened in the last century. So persecution has not slowed down by any stretch of the imagination. It has increased exponentially even in the last hundred years. And for us, as we kind of gather here this morning, this is probably the last thing that you thought Luke was going to get up and preach about, or unless you read ahead, maybe you were kind of suspecting something. But dying for our faith right here, right at this point, in Jeffersontown, Kentucky, doesn't seem very likely, does it? Kind of seems surreal to even talk about it. We, we live in the part of the world where, where Christianity is rarely talked about, and if it is brought forth in the news or something like that, it's usually being mocked. It's usually being defamed in some way, sidelined in some way. Otherwise, the media is strangely silent about the things that are going on around the world for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Charles Chatput, a Catholic archbishop in Denver, he was interviewed by the U.S. Commission of International Religious Freedom, and he said this. He said, three things distinguish anti-Christian persecution and discrimination around the world. First, it's ugly. Second, it's growing. And third, the mass media generally ignores or downplays its gravity. Suffering. Christian suffering exists in the world. Christian persecution exists on every single continent. It's, 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 it's there. It's there. It, it looks different in various places, but it's not a difference of presence, but it's a difference of degree. And so as we look at this text this morning with this church in Smyrna, they were about to go under persecution. And so Jesus sends them this letter to encourage them, strengthen them. If you don't know anything about the city of Smyrna, the city is located on the coast of the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor. It was just north of Ephesus, if you're looking at a map, and it was a rival port city for Ephesus. And it was claimed by some in the ancient world to be the first city of the Asian world. It was beautiful. It was, it was a gorgeous city. It was a city that, would, that was kind of sloped in a sense. And it, it rose to the top of this one hill, this hill called Pagos. And the buildings on the top of Hill Pagos, they, they were created in a circle around the top of the hill. So it looked like it was a crown looking down onto the sea. It's a beautiful city. And there was a, a wonderful western breeze that they would say would, would kind of blow through the city in the evening time, making it just a very pleasant place to live and be. Smyrna was a loyal city to the Roman Empire. 
And most people think that when we look back in church history, it seems as though Paul was probably the one who planted the church there in Smyrna during his third missionary journey. This morning, as we look at this text, we think about these people. I want you to understand that suffering is going to happen in your life. It's not if it's going to happen. It will happen. You will experience suffering. You may grow old and lonely, but never be slandered for your faith. But that's suffering. You may be ridiculed at work or ostracized because you, sh- you shared your faith with someone at work. Or, or you may end up in prison somewhere. You may end up being killed for your faith, for the gospel's sake. All of us will experience some kind of suffering as disciples of Jesus Christ. And this morning, what I want you to understand is that if trial is coming, and we believe that trial is coming, then it matters who Jesus is. And it matters how you suffer. And it also matters how you finish. So let's look at the first of these these truths. When we suffer, it matters who Jesus is. Look at that first section of verses, verse 8 and verse 9. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, there's a couple of really important things that I want you to note from uh, this first section. Again, as we talked about, uh, Jesus instructs John to write these letters to these seven churches, and, and he gives it to the angel of the church in Smyrna. We don't know exactly what the angel is, maybe some sort of protecting kind of angel over the church, but regardless of what it is, he's sending this letter, not just to an angel, not just to a pastor, not just to a courier, he's sending this letter to the people of God living in Smyrna. And there's three really important phrases that I want you to focus on in this section, verses 8 and 9. If we're going to make it all the way to the end, if we're going to to receive the victor's crown at the very last day, then it matters who Jesus is. Notice how Jesus describes himself specifically. You'll notice that he describes himself differently for each of these churches, but he describes himself specifically for the church here in Smyrna. And the first thing he says is that he is the first and the last. The first and the last. Now, there's an immediate connection when we think about this phrase, right? We've heard Jesus say something like this in just a couple of verses back. Verse 17 in chapter 1, he says to John, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. And he says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So, What is Jesus saying here when he says he is the first and the last? Now, he is saying that he is the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. He is saying that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He, He is the beginning and the end and everything else in between. He's all of that. But he's saying something even more significant than that that would have been really important for his audience. Some of these people are Jewish believers, people who have come to faith in Jesus and we're Jewish, they understand the Old Testament, even those who are Greek understand the Old Testament in the context of the gospel. And Jesus is saying that he himself is the covenant Lord. That's what he's saying. He is the Lord, the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh. We look back at the Old Testament. Isaiah records these words of Yahweh in chapter 44. He says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, 
I am the first and I am the last. These are words spoken by Yahweh himself. Jesus is saying that he's the one that makes covenants. He's the one that keeps covenants. He is the one that sustains. Jesus is saying there is no other God besides me. I alone am God. I am the one who was, who is, and is to come. Now, you think about it, for the people living under an imperial cult, under Roman rule, people who were daily being commanded to offer incense to the emperor or to to go to the temple of Zeus or Aphrodite and worship, Jesus is saying something really important to them who are about to undergo persecution. He's saying, I am God and there is no other God. Don't fear those who will persecute you. Fear the Lord. Listen to what the rest of Isaiah says here in, in chapter 44. He says those words, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appoint an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know they may, that they may be put to shame. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself, who frustrates the signs of the liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. So can you imagine in the minds of these people in Smyrna as they hear Jesus say, I am the first and I am the last. And they're living in this cultural context. The echoes of Isaiah coming to them. He's the first and the last. There is no God besides him. And all of these so-called gods out on the hill, they are not gods. There is only one God. And Yahweh is his name. Who Jesus is really would matter to them. Second, what does he call himself? Well, he demonstrates that he is the one who is the risen king. He is the risen king. Not only is Jesus the covenant Lord, but he is the risen Messiah. Death no longer has any kind of power over him. After all, he, he's already said in chapter 1 that, that he holds the keys of death and Hades. So not only is he the one who has created all things, not only is the one who is sustaining all things, who sovereignly provides for his covenant people, what is he saying? He's saying that he has control over death. He is the risen one. Matthew records this very, very well for us. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, and Jesus would say to the church in Smyrna, and he says to us here this morning, he says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear the Romans. Don't fear the, the persecutors. He says, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is the one who has control over death and life. 
Jesus is the one who has been raised from the dead, never to die again. And so we have to trust in Jesus because he, he is also the one, not only his control over death and Hades, but he is the one who intensely cares about his people. He is that covenant Lord. He goes on and he says this in verse 29 of chapter 10. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Friends, these are important words for people who are suffering. We cannot fear the people who would want to do us harm. We cannot fear death itself because it has no power over us anymore in Christ. Instead, we must rest in the love of God that He has for us. Now finally, in this section, notice that Jesus, not only is He the risen King, and not only is He the first and the last, but we see that Jesus, He observes everything. Jesus sees everything. There's three key words that you'll notice in this section. One is tribulation, one is poverty, and one is slander. When we think about these people living in Smyrna experiencing this constant threat of persecution. And at this point, the Roman Empire is allowing pockets of persecution. It's not, it's not uh, full-on persecution throughout the empire, but different pockets of persecution. And the, the people in these various communities could decide what they wanted to do with different kinds of new religious movements. And these believers, so they're constantly wondering what's going to happen next for them. They're constantly wondering what is around the corner. Will their homes be taken away next week? Will their children be, be stolen and sold into slavery? Will their wives be abducted by the Roman guards and forced to work in brothels? Will their lives be cut short by a blade? Or will they be thrown into an arena to be eaten by animals? What will happen to them? This constant pressure, this constant stress. But not even, even more than that, they are being oppressed economically. He says that they are poor, but not really poor. He says they're poor. The Christians in Smyrna are being oppressed economically because of their faith in Jesus. Maybe they've been rejected in the marketplace and so they cannot sell their goods. Or, or maybe they've been denied work because of their faith in Jesus. And the word here that he uses is this extreme poverty of having nothing. Many of them had already lost everything for following Jesus. They'd, they'd lost their homes. Some of them had lost relationships. They'd lost family. They'd lost their jobs. So for them, becoming a Christian was something of a earthly, from an earthly point of view, it's a sacrifice. It's something significant. But then Jesus turns right around and he says, but even though you're poor, you're rich. You're rich. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, I think the reverberations of Mark 10 are, are helpful. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. For many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus is saying there's a bigger picture in mind. But then the last word there, 
these Jewish people in this community were slandering the Christians living in Smyrna. And John makes it pretty clear how he feels about his kinsmen, those who were Jews, fellow Jews, but who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He says about them that they're not worshiping God anymore, doesn't he? He says they're not worshiping God anymore. They've rejected the king, and no longer are they a synagogue for Yahweh, but he says now they have become devil worshipers themselves, rejectors of the king. It's amazing how we can become so convinced that an ethnicity qualifies you to be a people of God. When we look at the gospel and we look at the New Testament, John obviously doesn't feel this way. God himself calls those who reject the Savior and persecute true believers the synagogue of Satan. Other things that they were slandering about the Christian church, on numerous occasions throughout the ancient world, Christians were slandered. They were, they were called cannibals oftentimes. Cannibals because they were talking about the body and the blood of Christ. So as they would come together and they would meet together in communion, the outside world would assume that they're eating somebody's flesh and blood. And they would believe that they were cannibals. These kinds of lies were propagated. Uh, others would say that they were only people who were having orgies and getting together for sexual immorality because they would get together and they would have love feasts where they're loving one another, they're respecting one another, they're living the gospel with one another, and they're, they're eating together, and they're fellowshipping. And, of course, this is also not true, what was being slandered about them. And then others would say that they were a, a rebel group because they rejected the imperial cult. They didn't believe that the emperor was a, was a god. And so this was another thing that was always being said about them. Now, we think of the church at Smyrna. We're not going through the exact same thing that they're going through. And we may not ever go through the same things that they're going through. But the kind of trials that we endure on a regular basis can rock our faith just as effectively as the things that they were experiencing in their own lives. When we're suffering, regardless of where that suffering takes place or what kind of suffering it is, it matters who Jesus is. It matters. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it matters for you who Jesus is. There's nothing else in the world that will have a greater impact on your life than this truth. Jesus is the one who made you. Jesus is the one who will judge you. And Jesus is the only one who can save you from sin. Or maybe you're here this morning and your, your experience age like you haven't yet experienced in your life. You remember all of the things that you have done over the years, good things. You, you remember teaching kids in Sunday school. You remember serving as a deacon. And, and you remember praying around the dinner table with your family and intentionally trying to train up your children to follow Jesus. And now at this point in your life, maybe you feel forgotten by those around you. Isolated because of illness. Isolated because of age. But what I want to tell you is that in the midst of that suffering, Jesus hasn't forgotten you. Jesus hasn't forgotten you. He knows your hurts. He knows your pain. He, he, he has made a covenant with you. If there's anything we know about Jesus is that he always keeps his promises. But he says something specific to kids, too. How many of you are under 12? Raise your hand. Dave, you're not under 12. Okay. There's, there's something here for you guys, too. 
There's something here in what God is saying here. Sometimes as adults, I'm talking to you guys, don't, don't lose me yet. Sometimes it seems like adults don't really understand what's most important in life, right? I mean like fidget spinners, right? That's a big deal. Sometimes it seems like we don't really get it. Like we're Peter Pan who grew up and then, you know, forgot what imagination was and forgot how cool things were, right? But you know what's most amazing is that Jesus knows what you're going through. And if, even if we as adults don't get it, he does. He knows exactly how you feel. He knows what it feels like when your best friend decides they don't want to be your best friend anymore because you're not cool enough for them and they go play with somebody else. He knows what it feels like if somebody makes fun of you on the playground and it hurts and makes you want to cry. Jesus knows what that feels like. Jesus knows what it feels like to hurt. He knows what it feels like when, when you, all you want in an evening is for your mom and dad to tuck you in, to give you a kiss, and you just want to hug. He knows what that feels like. If I want you to get one thing from the sermon, it's that Jesus knows exactly what you're going through too. Sometimes we think like Jesus is only about adult stuff. He's not. He's all about your stuff too. And he cares about the things that you care about. He wants to know you and he wants to love you. Suffering comes to us whether we're six years old or 96 years old. And trial and difficulty. And Jesus meets us there. He always meets us there. And because of who Jesus is, it matters then how we suffer. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So in a culture that, that prized social stability and viewed new religious movements as, as political threats, Christians in Smyrna were being pushed away from that established movement of Judaism and they were being intimidated, intimidated by local officials and, and other people. And prison away to the people in Smyrna. But Jesus here in this verse, he assures them that the tribulation will be brief. He says a mere 10 days. I don't think he's probably talking about a literal 10 days, but it is the fullness of that prison. They will experience persecution. And after the testing, it doesn't necessarily mean that after the testing means they, they get to return home to the streets of Smyrna and go about life like they would have experienced. That's not what he means. Martyrdom was probably in their future, either through a long prison sentence where eventually they die in prison around rats and filth, or they were killed openly through execution. But what's most amazing here is that he says that martyrdom is a future victory for them. So that which first appeared to be something that was a defeat, he's saying that this is the supreme victory for those who are in Jesus Christ. He says that if you endure to the end, you will experience the crown of life. He's referring to this laurel wreath that an athlete, after he'd run a race and he had won, they would place this victor's crown, this laurel wreath on top of his head, signifying that he was the one who was victorious. And Jesus says, I will give you the crown of life in the end. But he tells us that this is, this is all spiritual warfare, isn't it? Everything that's happening in this text, everything that's happening in this world, we see 
that Satan has his hands in it as he influences and strikes out at the people of God. And it's good to be reminded of this. It's good to be reminded that our, our persecution at its root is, is always spiritual warfare. And so it helps us have a context or it helps us have a perspective to be able to understand how to treat people in the midst of persecution. We don't lash out because we know that the one who's actually persecuting us is Satan himself. Reminds me of Ephesians 6 where Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, not human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So friends, recognize that this morning. You live in a world, in a culture, an American culture, that is out to get you. That desires your destruction. Satan has engineered and orchestrated things in such a way that, that it will bring about your downfall if you are not prepared. He desires your destruction. He desires that you would fail to get to the end. He, he wants to see you crushed and broken. He, he wants to see you remain silent about the gospel with your friends and your neighbors. Suffering for the faith is inevitable. Jesus tells the Smyrna believers, you are about to suffer. And isn't that what Jesus promises us in the gospel? He says that if you're going to be like me, a servant is never above his master. If you're going to be like me, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And the reality is it matters how we suffer. Jesus gives a command to these Smyrna believers, and I believe he's giving that command to us as we think about our own lives in relationship to suffering and persecution. He says to them, do not fear. Don't fear those who can take away the body but can't take away the soul. Don't fear the Romans. Don't fear these Jews, but fear the Lord. And in the same sense, he's saying to us this morning, don't fear. Don't fear what other people might think of you when you share the gospel. Don't fear how your family might respond when you tell them that you want to go overseas to hard places to be a missionary. Don't fear how your friends will respond when you decide that you're going to marry young and you're going to raise godly children. Don't fear losing your reputation or your standing. Don't, don't fear losing what is not yours to keep. Your life belongs to God. Your honor belongs to God. Well, friends, it matters how we suffer. You couples that are married, you have a great responsibility as you display the gospel of Jesus Christ on a daily basis as a married couple. And you will go through trials together. Don't try to go through the trial alone when you have a partner. God has positioned you as a married couple to carry one another in a unique way. Use every single opportunity to invest in your marriage. Count on one another. Confide in one another. Encourage one another. So that when the day arrives, you can stand arm in arm against the enemy. And you can endure to the end. Those of you who are parents here this morning... Parenting for the short term is never going to get your kids where you want to get. 
Parenting for the short term is reactionary. It's focused on behavior modification. It's focused on the fit instead of focused on the heart. And our desire as Christian parents is that our children be prepared to follow Jesus through the difficulties, through the hard times. And so that means that we're pouring our lives into them. It means that we're, we're, we're training them to trust in the promises of Jesus. Or maybe you're single here this morning. Trials come to us in all kinds of different ways. You've, you've wanted to be married for a really long time, but God has not given you the opportunity to be married. So friend, don't waste your singleness. Don't waste your singleness. Invest yourself for the kingdom here or maybe overseas. Use the time and the energy that you have, just as Paul tells us in his letters, to fixate on the gospel and glorifying Christ. And it matters how we suffer. We do not fear. And why? Because Jesus tells us, John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So it matters who Jesus is, and it, it matters how we suffer. And finally, it matters how you finish. It matters how you finish. Look at the, uh, the next verse. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus says, be faithful unto death. He doesn't merely mean be loyal until you die, but be faithful even though it costs you your life. Be faithful. When we think of this ancient city of Smyrna, it's, it's impossible to, to think about Smyrna, if you know church history a little bit, and not think of the man Polycarp. It's a funny name for English speakers. But Polycarp was probably at this point in history, when this letter is being written, Probably in the church in Smyrna. He was a bishop eventually. But he was a disciple of John the Apostle. And these words that are found in this text are probably the ones that echoed in his mind as he stood lashed to the stake, ready to die for the faith in 155 AD. And the story goes something like this. He had been asked to say that Caesar is Lord. which is basically the equivalent of denying Christ. But he refused to do so. So he was brought to the stadium. And the writing says that the official urged him saying, Swear and I will set you free. Swear to Caesar and I will set you free. Reject Christ. And Polycarp, he answers with these words. Eighty-six years I have served him. And he never did be any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And so the official, he comes to him again. He presses him. And Polycarp says, since you are vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And so a little bit later, the official comes to him and he says, I have wild beasts at hand and I will give you to them unless you repent. And Polycarp doesn't even tremble. The official says, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you don't care about the wild beast if you will not repent. But this is what Polycarp says. He says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the coming fiery judgment and of eternal punishment reserved 
for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you will. And Polycarp died in the flames. But he finished well. He received the crown of life. What we're hearing from this text is be faithful to the end. Be faithful if it costs you your life. Sometimes I've heard guys say about their wives something like, yeah, I love her so much. I, I would die for her. I would die for her. Or, or about your kids. You know, that you would be willing to take a bullet for your kids. You'd be willing to go all the way for your kids. You would do what was necessary. And I think as guys, we probably mean that. It's probably true. But it's really easy to make grand statements about scenarios that will probably never happen. But imagine if we, if we said, I love my wife so much that I'm going to live for her. I love my kids so much that I'm going to live for them. I'm going to invest the moments. I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to train them. I'm going to live life with them. Imagine if we were faithful, not just at the point of death, but all the way up to it, all the way. So every minute of every hour, every day was spent investing in the kingdom of God. Every, every moment was considered about how we might maximize our time for Jesus Christ, that we might be witnesses of what He has done, of what He has done in the world and what He's done in our lives, of who He's making us to be. Friend, if you're not a Christian here this morning, when all is said and done, what will be the sum of your life? A retirement account? A house? A book you've written? Grandkids? When Jesus calls you to himself for a purpose that, that far exceeds the pitily 75, 80 years you might live on this planet. He offers you eternal life. If you will turn away from your sin, if you'll turn away from your selfishness, your immorality, your anger, your lust, whatever it might be, and instead trust in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that can be found at the cross. Kids, one of the things that my dad always taught me was that if you start something, you need to finish that thing. How many of you guys like to play with Legos? I know mine do. Yeah. What if you started a, a, a Lego project and you looked at it and you're like, man, that's a really cool picture. I'm going, to, I'm going to do what's on the box there. And so you start putting everything together, but then you get bored. Has that ever happened to you? Caitlin says, no, that never happens to me. That's not true. <laughs> you're in the middle of the project, you get bored, and then you stop, and you decide you're going to do something else. It's never going to look like that. You have to finish what you start. You have to finish well. And so what I'm telling you is, you think about your young life and the things that are so very important right now, and I want to just encourage you to listen to your parents because they know what they're talking about. Obey your parents because they are trying to train you to follow Jesus Christ. And so you want to start well so that you might finish well. Church, 
Oh, that we would be a church that finishes well. A church that is faithful all the way up to the last day because it really does matter how we finish. We have to put aside the fear that we have, fear of failure, fear of what people might think about us, fear of what, 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 what people might do. We must be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of the storm. Because this is what Jesus promises us. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give the crown of life. It's the same word that he uses in chapter 6 and verse 2 when he says that he came out conquering and to conquer. The conqueror is the one who fights. The conqueror is the one who fights against sin on a daily basis. The conqueror is the one who fights against the devil on a daily basis. The conqueror is the one who fights against the whole dominion that stands in opposition to God and his Christ. The conqueror is the one who, because of Jesus and the love of Christ, he perseveres all the way to the end. That is the conqueror. So the question is, when we think about this text and this message, how will we respond today? I think Nick Ripkin, a missionary overseas, says it very clearly in his book, The Insanity of God. Listen to this. It's a quotation. He says, ultimately, the problem is one of emphasis and focus. Instead of recognizing, thinking about, remembering, praying about, identifying with, and focusing on the suffering of fellow believers around the world, we would do well to shift our focus. Quite simply, we would do well to ask ourselves whether or not we are being obedient to Jesus. He is asking us, He is expecting us, He is commanding us to share Him wherever we go. He's commanding us to do that wherever we are today. It is a simple matter of, a simple matter of obedience. If He is our Lord, then we will obey Him. If we do not obey Him, then He is not our Lord. Perhaps the question should not be, why are others persecuted? Perhaps the better question is, why are we not? He says, I cannot forget the words of my friend Stoyan, who understood both the spiritual battle being waged and the significance of the decisions to be made. He said, I took great joy that I was suffering in my country so that you could be free to witness in your country. And then he raised his voice to say, don't you ever give up in freedom what we would never give up in persecution. And that is our witness to the power of of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so many believers, even today, as we're worshiping here in this place, they're in prison. They are being walked up the gallows to be hung. They are being torched. They're being ripped away from their families. And for them, the decision has been made. The die has been cast. When we suffer, it matters who Jesus is. It matters how we suffer. It matters how we finish. But we must make a decision each morning, regardless of the trial that we're going through. Will I exercise my freedom to witness for Jesus today? Or will I be silent? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of trial, we can turn to you and rest in you. Father, I pray that we would respond well to these words today. That we might be 
faithful to the end, even unto death. And that we would live every single day for you and for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name.